I would never say that. Okay, so we want to optimize your uh, your sleep pattern uh, patternings. No, uh, it would rather be that. Okay, so so let's go with what you're interested in. Uh, I have this information available <laughs> if you'd like, but it's like. Um, Perhaps the solution for you is actually to become way more crazy. Right, oh, I've hit record. So we've just been talking about this clinic that you're potentially going to be setting up and about what you've called the, the Rosen method, which is a psychosomatic treatment that exists. And then that brought me on to talking about Wilhelm Reich, who I was reading recently, and amongst a lot of his wild theories. He had this insight that you could you could work with releasing bodily tension, with bodily armoring, and he divided the body into seven segments that could be worked on through the treatment he used. And that really struck me because they're the same seven segments that emerge in the physiology from yoga known in the chakra system. Mm. And mm. so however you frame these points within a metaphysics, whether it's a, a 20th century psychoanalytic scientific framework, or whether it's in a 2000 year old symbolic Ayurvedic metaphysics, the points themselves exist. And there is some real correlation between work done to release tension to increase awareness in these points and psychological transformations hmm. and what are the seven points according to the reiki so so if i remember it will be corresponding to upper face lower face and neck um heart stomach uh, lower stomach so that's five. I'm not sure how he subdivides the other two, but he talks of seven. Yeah. So because, like most people have heard about the chakras, but uh, how, how does his, he uh, describe what's happening in these different parts of the bodies, and what, what what do they correspond to, more or less? I've not gone deep enough to understand what they correspond to, but he describes it being that tension locks up in different areas, essentially. Hmm types of traumatic experience or attempts for the psyche to to re reconstitute itself in light of traumatic experiences leads to um, yeah the muscular tension in these areas and what was particularly interesting is this sense that you there was an order in which they would be released mm. which is also present, as I understand it, in the yogic physiology. However, I think they take different orders to them. And here again, my knowledge doesn't go deep enough. But hmm. if I remember from reading Reich, he was saying his approach was to kind of work down from the uh, the face and the neck to then releasing the chest and eventually the lower body. Um, whereas yoga, I think there are different routes to move through it. However, mm -hmm. I have heard one teacher saying, beginning at the head, then moving to the heart, then moving to the stomach, and then moving back up to the heart is the progression mm -hmm. of a deep, mature yoga practice. Mm -hmm. Well, what's in, what I think is interesting about the Rosen method and what is like, to me personally, very fertile about the Rosen method is that mm -hmm. it, it, it's a method. It's not a theory, right? So... So, so what we what we're doing is that we're we're practicing on becoming sensitive to tensions and reactivity of muscles in the body, right? So, so when you're if you're a practitioner and you're uh, giving a treatment, then uh, well, uh, your client lies down on a massage bank, uh, preferably almost naked. And uh, you sort of, you, you observe, you get an overview of the body. Um, you, you, you try to see where things are excessively like contracted or expand or expanded, you know, and, um, and uh, then you rest your hands on the person's body. 
and then you move around intuitively and that's what's so interesting about it is that you 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 it doesn't work if you're not guided by your own hands you know it, it's uh, you have to have this uh, inquisitive attitude to explore that person's body um and what and and what i've noticed is that if i'm present then my hands guide me to to certain regions which indeed like are especially tense or reactive um and then uh, the, and then what you do there is that you, you're trying to bring awareness to that part of the body it's not like massage where you're trying to sort of uh, you loosen up the muscles and uh, by adding force and fixing things uh, it's that your mutual awareness your awareness brings the other person's awareness to that um, region of muscles and uh, that in itself has a um, sort of an emancipatory effect um, because if you're thinking about a muscle region uh, that is constantly um, on you know it's uh it's tense like that what you're lacking there is functional integration it might be anatomically integrated because it's there right um it's connected to the to the rest of your body anatomically but not functionally because information cannot pass through it right it's always on so and that means you can't be aware of it so so what I've heard reported uh, from the people that I've been given tre giving treatments is that is that they they sort of discover uh, that they have that part of the body or that muscle group, and uh, they like it's a cliche almost that they always say I didn't know that I was uh, tense there, you know, that I, that I was flexing. Um, and that's what they say afterwards. But but you you can feel very very clearly when you come to uh, a new place that okay so now you're not in contact there's no response response to this this state is the the state is fixed or is stuck on on and then you stay there and you can go deeper and you feel things moving and like uh dissolving sort of and then all of a sudden there's some sort of communication it feels like between my hand and the person lying there so so that's the experience but but what, what i told you before we started recording was that interestingly enough that the the practitioners have no theoretical uh, framework to understand why what they're doing is is working they have faith in the method because they, they get instantaneous feedback it's it's self-explanatory that something is happening and when you see the emotional response it's obviously it's obvious that something is important is happening but they don't know why and um and that's why i said that i think uh, that that's this is fertile ground for me because i i have a background in i've been doing research on embodied cognition and i've studied with the people who who, who discovered the the mirror neuron system for example so like um like if you apply sort of the 4e cognitive science and the third generation cognitive science perspective that is coming right now then you have a then you have a theoretical framework that affords uh, or that that allows for such effects to take place, um, and, and that that's why I'm there now, despite it having a quite a, a, um, a vague uh, rec uh, reputation. Mm. Um, what is your sense of of what's going on? I mean, it reminds me as a kind of layperson of the work of the. Um, the psychologist whose name I've totally forgotten now, but who wrote uh, Descartes' Error, who we've discussed before. Oh, oh yeah, 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 for, for sure. Uh, Antonio Damasio. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, this idea that we think and <laughs> we think as much with our bodies as we do with our thoughts, and like rather that mm. split between thought and emotion is a totally artificial one. In fact, thoughts arise, and we prioritize between thoughts precisely on the basis of how the body reacts and gives different micro perceptible sensory experiences that if that large enough can be experienced as emotions, but could also just be kind of sensed as vague intuitions. Yeah. Let, let's, um, let's unpack that because there are, there are many, there are many different, uh, 
routes we can take down into the body here, also like within Damasio's own work. But um, so the first is to remember that like your brain and your nervous system exists in service of the survival of the body of the soma, and then in turn your your body exists in in, uh, in service of the survival of the of the sperm cells, right, or the sexual cells. So. Um, so just given that relationship, uh, that, that your brain and nervous system must be constantly monitoring uh, how the body is doing, uh, if things feel good or bad in the body. All feelings, feelings are interceptive readings. It's signals coming from your viscera uh, up to your, uh, to your brain. So like the, the communication between the, the body proper then, because brain is part of the body, but the body proper and, uh, and the brain is that like nine, 90% of the connections between them are going from the body up and 10% are going down. So, so what is that communication? So Damasio's somatic, somatic marker hypothesis was that uh, the body is something that marks relevance for information in the brain so what he saw that was that um, this is a, he discovered that this was an, a necessary part of uh, of learning what was the feedback loop between the body and the brain so uh, and we, we we can get that intuitively by like even if we're making something like the most cold calculation like mathematical calculation and we do something wrong we're like Ugh, we cringe a little bit so that, that means information is going down into the body. The bo like, okay, error, body's go uh, error signal is going down. It gets its uh, valence from the, the, uh, the somatic marker then. It, it has a representation in the body in the form of a cringe. And then that signal goes back up, uh, which, uh, well, changes how that information is coded to make, well, the, the, the mathematical information is coded so that, uh, you will avoid making that error again. And what we see is that like people who have a, who've got a lesion in the interoceptive cortex, which receives these signals, they can make mathematical uh, calculations perfectly fine. And uh, they can make errors and they can explain why uh, that was the wrong thing. So they understand everything perfectly mathematically, but they will keep re repeating the errors, uh, knowing that they're wrong and sort of being uh, unperturbed by the fact that they're repeating the errors. So, so even for like the coldest, uh, the, the coldest uh, problem solving processes, we, we need that sort of feedback from the body um, because that's how we mark relevance really. And that's what emotions are for. Um, so, so that that's one thing that the, the feedback and learning uh, but then, then we also like our enteric ner nervous system is so vast uh, that we we actually we can outsource uh, cognitive capacities to our body. Uh, like this is most obvious when um, in body language when we're moving uh, to explain our ideas. It's called the cerebellar acceptation. Basically, it's a it was very obvious where I lived in Italy, uh, where well, you're expressing just... exactly. It's oh, it is, it is. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that <laughs> is just you're saying something with that that you can't say with uh, with uh, well, other <laughs> uh, other uh, language. But but it's very clear what that means. It's also like uh, you know. Uh, that that's something. So so we uh, th there we outsource also semantic information to muscular uh, patterns, right? Mm. Muscular movements. But and uh, but but that's for muscles. When it comes to like affective processes, everything is going on down there. Mm. So can we just join this up with what we were talking about before with muscular tension? Because one of the things that mm. is super interesting is how different areas connect to different types of 
affective or emotive experience. Mm. Do you have some sense of, of how that works? So, cause I, I, for example, I noticed within myself that I've got a lot of tension around my chest or what might be called in like yogic physiology, mm. the heart space or in like a mm. Western physiology, your chest space. I also get a lot of tightness in my lower back and the chest. In fact, both of them have gotten less intense recently. And I find myself feeling more relaxed and confident. One of mm. my real um, ongoing struggles, I guess, is with a real sense of fear and anxiety. Mm. And it, mm. it just, I can tell it's, it's associated with whatever's going on in my chest and whatever's going on in my lower back. And yeah. like I said, the, the, the more they release, the more comfortable, confident, expressive I'm able to be. Yeah, the, the, the experience is dependent on those signals. So, so the experience of anxiety is dependent on like having actually a contracted chest. Um, so when it comes to the chest, it's a bit, little bit less, um, it, well, it can be anything because a, any emotion, uh, any emo or emotion feeling has its uh, signature in uh breathing patterns and and heart rate right if you're anxious you you, you must be ready for danger uh and, th and that means that you're you well well it, mean, it means a lot of things but but your heart rate must be a bit elevated right and you're in the no wonder that your chest is tense if you if it has to be activated like that and and uh, well we breathe less i mean that means a lot lots of things but but uh some some Well, there are different types of functions there too. Like uh, some some obvious ones are the postural uh, things when it comes to to muscle tensions. That like, um, well, we could invoke Peterson's lobsters here, right? <laughs> to expand as a sign of dominance and like uh, prowess, and um, but not not just that. So and it, it's like it, it's useful in a social population to signal that you're a submissive person if you're if you're low sta status right because if, if someone is making lots of errors and is not liked and the signals that he doesn't understand that <laughs> you want to kill that person uh especially if you're a baboon <laughs> um so so th there's lots of postural signaling happening uh with and that, that's and and those are like some there are some in like in in well, universal uh, patterns of communications with, with posture. Uh, you, you can signal to a dog that you're dominant or submissive, uh, and it understands that immediately. Um, there are also like patterns of um, like relating to boundaries very much, like that movement, the sort of penetrating movement. Uh, it comes together with a certain kind of intrusive intention, right? Uh, and you and you can signal to a dog that you're respecting its boundaries and that you want your own boundaries respected as well. Um, and 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 that those things have uh, correspondence in sort of uh, general muscular, well, uh, well, in certain postures, right? You're for, leaning forward, like staring someone in the eyes with this per, per, like this penetrating gaze. It means something very different uh, than this. Mm. Um, and so, so about coming back to muscular tensions, it's like you can have experiences uh, that make it so that you you have always been punished, for example, in the broadest sense of the term, uh, for having a certain attitude. Um, or and and well for taking up a lot of space in a room for example you were a bit, a bit loud as a kid and uh, quite unpopular and whenever you were taking like making a joke that everyone can hear it didn't land so so you were socially punished for taking up a lot of space so you shrunk and your body literally shrinks and it stays like that and now you're an adult and you you uh, and it, it served an adaptive function as a kid, 
but you're in a very different con- uh, situation right now, but your muscles are still there. So the memories are encoded, not just as like um, abstract representations, but it re- goes all the way down in, uh, like into your uh, neurology of the soma as well. Um, so in order, and you, you can't do anything about it because you, you've lost touch, you, you've lost connection with those parts that are always tense. So that's what the Rosen method is trying to do, bring back awareness into those uh, regions of the body that you lost, you, you can't communicate with. I'll tell you what you got me thinking there as well is about how the working society at the moment tends to foster this submissive posture, sitting at a desk all day in yeah. front of the computer. It's yeah. slouching and not being engaged in in human-to-human interaction. It's like you said, being leaning forward with a penetrating gaze when in conversation with a person is one thing, but leaning forward hunched over mm. a computer is mm. a totally different thing. And we can even zoom that out a bit. I often find myself thinking that the life choice of simply following a career more or less as it is laid out of <laughs> applying for the jobs that exist and not having that much um, creativity or drive to just say, I want to do this, I'm going to do this and try and stitch things together of your own accord to forge your own path as opposed to taking the path that exists within the institutions, within the organizations that already exist is already in itself a somewhat submissive stance. It's not penetrating. It's not going, I'm going to penetrate the world and create something out of myself. It's there are holes and I'm just going into the holes that are already open. And then if you combine that with the fact that many of these holes involve folding over a computer and typing, 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 it's a recipe for submissiveness. And I, I find myself reflecting back problems, lower back problems. There must be some kind of correlation between this, the, the plague of most modern people of having some kind of back issues. Yes, if you, you're not, your body is not an active agent in the world. Uh, that, that, that does a lot of things to your neurophysiology. Right? If your job is to, to just receive input, build things from that, and your own agentic output that all, all of it is that that it is, is is tapping on a keyboard with your fingers well of course your body starts to rot but it, but it sends signals to 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 yourself about what sort of uh, capacities for acting in the world you, you actually have and and well if your body becomes weak so so does your mind really uh, so does your capacities to act. It's something that um, that I think is very interesting to think about in the context of um, some of uh, our mutual friend Alexander Bard's philosophy. He he emphasizes really like the division of um, in a tribe, like uh, the division of the, the the chief and the priest, or the king and the priest, if you may. Like where 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 the priest he, he thinks he's the, he he's got. Um, what he does is that he he integrates um, he he integrates knowledge, basically. It, it's it's sort of the the input. He he builds integrity uh, by by sort of um, constructing a, a history and a map of uh, reality. But but uh, since if he did both that and was too much of an active agent in the world, you would go corrupt and you 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 get a tyrant. So so sort of sort of the, the active executive uh function is uh outsour- well it, it's uh, it's a responsibility that is taken on by a completely different role in society um and within ourselves we need to have both of those roles as well uh we should if we if they um fuse too much if they become one and the same that that's a recipe for wishful thinking for example that like uh you forget well you, you construct your reality so that it suits uh, your wishes wishes which is what you must do in the end but in order to do that you must first get input from the world and then uh well exert your influence on the world and, and keep those processes separate uh what is happening when we're sitting and just receiving passively receiving input from a screen is that you, we we're getting 
we're building some sort of uh, integrity of internal representations of whatever is served to us from there. Um, but our, we, we, we don't do anything about that or with that. Uh, we don't produce anything creative from that. We, we don't change the world. And that's how we can just become the fuck puppets of the algorithms, really. Just passively, like flashlights, we're cosmic flashlights. <laughs> <laughs> fuck puppets of the algorithms. Yeah, yeah, man, it makes me think it's like one of the big problems of contemporary academia, I think, particularly in the humanities, that it's like a lot of research and thought, but actually the the transformation of that into agency in the world is academics, scholars have students and they teach their students. And that is an admirable and important function. But a lot of the research that comes out of say literature departments and philosophy departments, just books that then go into a library somewhere and then <laughs> never get read. And of course, these people try and express their agency through political movements, a lot of support for the current woke movements are coming out of academic institutions. But I even think that that's, that's kind of too macro mm. on the, um, on the personal and the small kind of subcultural level. It's, 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 it's small other than their own academic conferences. This was my experience in being in a literature department anyway, for mm. four years, I kind of found myself leaving and going, what do you guys actually do? And I was at points contempted in, in going down the traditional academic pathway. But I was like, again, I was like, I don't actually know what it is that you guys do. And where I'm super interested at the moment is kind of calling it provocatively declaring war on the universities, but really me asking the question of, okay, given that we've got digital, how can we do it better? How can we do whatever it is that the university, and particularly the humanities function, that priestly function does, but do it in a way that it is producing knowledge that is also geared towards tangible, action. penetrative movement. <laughs> geared towards action. What, what, I didn't hear what you said because of connection issues. Uh, connection uh, geared towards? Towards tangi tangible, penetrative movements. Yeah. Like, I think the sciences yeah, the, do this better because the research is often geared towards problem solving or can be used in the design and implementation of new technologies. They, they've done like the, what's happened. One thing that's happened to academy is something that also happens to individuals. We, we sort of lose touch with our own body, right? Our agentic capacities. And, and, um, sort of our ideas become auto-erotic, which is uh, the old term for autism, by the way. They fall in love with their own creation. Um, so, so our intellect um, just re remains in a cyclical loop of producing ideas for the sake of producing ideas. And that's happened in the academy as well. It's become, they created their own niche for idea creation. Uh, and the consequence, the real world uh, consequences of those ideas uh, are sort of, that's disconnected from, well, it, it doesn't produce much of a reward for the researcher. So, so it's created its own incentive structure, basically. Um, that has nothing to do or little to do with physical reality. You, you could, um, I think uh, Baudrillard has lots of good ideas about this. And uh, I remember Jordan Hall did a video uh, summarizing it very neatly that like there are different levels of problem solving of uh, simulation, you could say as well. A plumber has got to solve a physical problem there. So he's immediately in uh, direct, well, he's in immediate unforgivable connection with reality. Uh, then you have, uh, um, well, then you, you might have some sort of, um, well, so, so if you got a pipe, you can fix it immediately, or you can call the plumber, or you can call uh, the administrator of the building, who in turn calls the plumber. And then you're, you're another step away from solving the actual problem. 
or you can be a journalist who's reporting on how many people are actually <laughs> how many pipes are being fixed then you might get in touch with the the plumber you don't go and look at the pipe yourself you get in touch with the plumber and ask him or you get in touch with the administrator of the building so or you can be a politician who's supposed to solve problems in the real world but uh, whatever selects that politician is the reporting of the journalists so the the media landscape becomes the niche of the politician not the problem the physical solving problem solving landscape so he, the he well the politician exists at a completely different level of reality and this is the case in academia very much that like you have your little uh, clique of uh, researchers like there there are 30 people specialized enough to know what you're actually doing uh and uh, it, it's well you got some rivals perhaps but it's basically just uh, uh an orgy an autoerotic incestuous orgy um so so that's one part of the problem mm. so the question is then how to um well not necessarily academy but but the, uh, to to connect the priestly function with some sort of agentic output without corrupting it um mm. yeah this is where i'm liking what's going on um in around the european men's movement where there is mm. there's the input of high-tiered intellectuals like our friend bard and a few other guys who people who listen to this might know um but then there's also it's not an academic movement mm. it is cross it cross-classed crossed nationality there's a theoretical basis to something that is attempting to just invite men into a shared community or investigating what is man and how do we be man and how do we approach the 21st century in light of this it feels it's returning to that more um i guess tribal model where you will have some priests and some chieftains and some workers and some artisans and every elder archetype under the sun as well and i think that's much more of a um it's going to be much more effective at addressing our challenges than the hyper specialization that is a product of modernity's way of addressing problems which is that put all of the priests all of the smart people over in a box somewhere call it a university have a small or increasing but still small percentage of the elite or would be elite go and visit them for a period of years and then come out and they kind of disperse the knowledge production that goes on in that institution into the society at large but precisely because they are already elite and aim for the positions within the elite the knowledge gets stuck at that tier and only trickles down to the lower levels of the of the reality of the simulation if you will by a um <laughs> but what would i call it a kind of a watered down osmosis and of course communication is one of the the key strategies of disseminating knowledge you can't be giving every plumber <laughs> a copy of the phenomenology of spirit and be like <laughs> yo read that mm. then you'll get it they won't get it but i think i also think the model of having well, the, the, the plumber is the only person who really doesn't need to get it because he's <laughs> picking the pipes right <laughs> so yeah and then without him the whole thing would break down is why it's been so fascinating in fact in coronavirus the the emergence of the the class of essential worker which i read something the other day someone was arguing that this is basically just another word for working class mm <laughs> but a sexy way of dressing it up it's like the elite finding a way to recognize the uh, the contributions of the people who <laughs> actually keep society running if all the journalists mm. fucked off society would change but people would still keep <laughs> eating and doing what they do yes yeah well in the men's movement like what what they do for entertainment is okay this weekend we're going to build a house 
<laughs> you know, it, it's quite concrete, right? Uh, what the internet intellectuals uh, that, the, well, we fall in that category. Um, well, what we do for entertainment is, uh, well, our, our bodies sit down. We, we produce sort of uh, interesting ideas and synthesize very many interesting ideas. Um, but, and I think in order to like, to not be useless, uh, well, we, we must be very mindful of how we position ourselves in our extended network, right? So like, um, I'm, um, uh, well, I, I'm, uh, I've got very many good friends in, in this men's movement and, uh, I'm, uh, deliberately informing them uh, as much as possible and sort of uh, do my best to like provide little bits of information that can be used for us to synthesize some sort of strategic overview. Um, and, and, and that, that uh, well, it's a good position for me, I think. Uh, but, but to make sure that at least by extension, uh, we are grounded in nature in reality right so so a personal reason why i went into the rosen method uh, was that okay so i've been for 18 months now in a very good very very good starting positions in academy uh with um i've had the privilege to be able to work with three of my uh well uh, intellectual heroes um in three very, very interesting uh, fields. I, I mentioned the mirror neuron system, but, but, but then also I was able to do some psychedelic science, which was a, a big dream of mine, right? I was heading a research project that COVID uh, cut short. And uh, well, and, and then also like doing research at the clinic where we're using brain stimulation to treat cocaine addiction. All those things were like, I couldn't imagine anything better. Then I, I saw that, like, okay, so the people who are, well, five years older than me, like the, my older brothers, who are sort of the, the perfect versions of me, like if I did everything right, I would be sort of like them. They were depressed as fuck, and they were overworked and didn't have any free time at all. Uh, and and they, and like uh, they were also stuck with their screens. Um, and when I was stuck in 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 my screen, I was looking in these PDF documents. And I was considering like, okay, so what is my grounding in reality here? I was looking at these tests that were supposed to measure something which uh, was, well, they didn't always measure what they measure, what they well thought they were measuring. And even if they did, the results weren't always as reliable as you would hope. There were statistical little tricks and uh, here and there. And, and there's always the element of chance and, and there's no possibility for the researchers really like control and, and see that, well, they're measuring what they want to be measuring and that that actually is and that their theories are actually correct and all of that. And so, so what, and, and if you're actually doing that, if you're, if you're doing the hard work of getting into the gritty details of, uh, of making sure that your <laughs> theories have integrity, then uh, you won't be the best researcher because you won't, it takes so much time that you won't publish enough papers uh, and that won't accrue that many citations. So that's the sort of the origin of the replication crisis, which is a big problem in psychology, uh, that like there are so many papers that uh, are simply uh, not right and not useful and, and so disconnected from reality that there is either completely false or untestable uh, or uh, just a result of chance. So, and so I thought, that, okay, so this, my niche is basically to, uh, to play around with these, uh, tests and, uh, maybe I'm doing something right, but I will never know. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I wanted the immediate, I wanted to be in touch with the reality and, and that's, you, you are that in the touch doesn't lie. You know, you're an actual, you're contact with a real body. That's uh, that's true. Like, yeah, it's just truth, you know. 
Uh, but there's like some kind of false incentive structure within that psychological establishment where in order to be recognized and to rise in the hierarchy, you need to produce a certain volume of output. But in order to produce a certain volume of outputs, you're incentivized to reduce the quality of the output. Yes. That's basically what you're getting at. Yeah. Yes. And that's, well, it's cool then within that context that you mentioned that you're hoping to set up your own clinic, right? Presumably that will give you space to do the the work and the studies you would like to without having the incentive of trying to rise up someone else's hierarchy. And as yeah. long as you can produce results. Yeah, that, that's the that's the key. So like the, the Rosen method, that's uh, that's just what I call the, the, the legitimate core business. Uh, th there will be lots of experimentations uh, in many different directions from there. Uh, and um, and so, so I, I see that since I'm, I'm good at talking, uh, I, the, the, big, the, the biggest threat to, to this whole uh, project would be that I turn into a charlatan, right? So an essential part of this project was to, is to find some sort of, well, as I said, the Rosen method is self-evidential, but, but uh, to sort of uh, have, uh, well, get, uh, I need a, a sort of private kind of data collection, right? To, to anchor, uh, to anchor myself in uh, neurophysiology, for example. Uh, so, so that's the, um, that's something that will happen far into the further into the future. Uh, that maybe you know my my clients get to borrow some of those uh, uh, Garmin watches, right? And registers. There's heartbeat and there's leap, and and maybe we can make draw some correlations between that and other lifestyle decisions and whatever, you know, there, there are lots of interesting things there, but like the, the sense Socratic perspective of Alexander Bard is uh, uh, definitely something that's, um, well, I, I think that, that that's just such a powerful tool of uh, staying anchored in reality that like anyone who, who wants to explore something quite novel, where you would also be like, where any expert who's actually in the position where you can well where you can deceive people because you know more than they do um well ha having some sort of uh, uh socratic methodology i think is uh is a necessity mm. some kind of numbers that can't deceive you although to play devil's advocate for a moment i'm going to throw out something that i've been just Pondering recently, which relates to the handling of the coronavirus crisis, mm. um, where it strikes me that the whole approach of lockdowns everywhere, which has been done in most, at least most European countries, is based on this idea of having scientists coordinate the response, which of course you want to an extent within a pandemic, but then also scientists are trained to behave in a way that is somewhat sensocratic to to look at numerical mm. data and optimize for certain numerical outcomes so the one that we appear to be um <laughs> optimizing for at least in the uk is for <laughs> low deaths right prevent mm. deaths and everything else is kind of secondary to that output which yeah. is prevent deaths and i think that actually is a massive perversion of the mission of society because there's so much more than simply optimizing a little variable. For one thing, in fact, yeah, deaths yeah. are a fact of life. It speaks to the fact of how afraid of death our cultures are, that our response to something is, is stop death, as opposed to how can we most optimally keep society running, keep people healthy and happy and motivated and sense that they belong to something. I almost find myself thinking that we've sacrificed one generation, i.e. the young, in order to save another, the old. And this isn't going into the territory of saying, let them all fucking die. But it's the scientist-led response, so I come back to this, it, it's optimized one variable. And I'm afraid yeah. that in an increasingly sensocratic world, we have to be very careful not to fall into the trap of simply optimizing. I mean, it's the same thing that we do with GDP, right? We assume that as long yeah. as a country's GDP is growing, then everything is working there. And, don't pay so much attention to absolutely coefficients uh, there's a 
like it's also like the more any any metric really but especially any social metric is used for for policy making or or like the more prone it is to be corrupt to become corrupted right um and and also there's of course like the there are great problems of like the like especially in in psychology what you want to achieve is is uh, you can't measure that um it's just the case like the life quality i would never like put metrics on that um but in my personal case with, with this uh, envisioned uh, well clinic um it's rather like you know it's a good product to sell a little toolbox uh, where you can analyze your own uh, uh, neurophysiology uh, and and discuss and use that as one of many tools together with your therapist coach sort of right um one of many pathways uh, because that that's that information it can't inform uh, really like uh, how i lay my hand on the body of that person so so it, it's sort of like a uh, yeah one of many things that could be fun to play with um however however it is quite like if we get good measures on like um stress and arousal uh, like a uh, stressful arousal and we see things reduce after a certain amount of uh, of uh, therapy sessions with several people that's just good to have <laughs> even it just in order to sell your product without uh, bullshitting people right mm. so, um um so, so it's it's not it's not for the sake like it it's on the one part of the spectrum you could be a a charlatan is just making up lots of uh, nice words and and pleasing uh, your clients and and selling bullshit on the other hand you can become this sort of uh, autistic uh man machine that is trying to optimize for some very reductive parameters um but i think given uh, given the methods that i want to apply uh, I, i more run the risk of going on that side of the spectrum than than the other um so so it, it's um, it's a pathway to a holistic approach rather than the opposite for me i think but but that's it's just uh, it's just one of the little ideas that I, I spoke about with with this person that I was just in the room today and that's why it's it came to mind um but um yeah it, no, it's, I, I think uh, you're along the right a, track i mean yeah. where we <laughs> what we're pointing towards at the moment this is one of i think the fundamental problems um a problem in a productive way Mm. of how do we hold on to everything that our scientific method and our ability to measure gives us mm. while also not mm. becoming slaves to it it's and so it's like as you said on the one hand of avoiding being the uh, the autist i love that autists originally was called autoerotic by the way i had no idea about that that's so fucking interesting i'm going to ponder that but then on the other hand not going full romantic and just embracing wild symbolizations that mm. we can just pull out of a hat at random mm. yeah just got to say that the 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 reason why it was called autoerotic uh didn't have didn't have very much to do with with my explanation of what of autoeroticism that <laughs> it's uh, it it has to do with infant mother relationships and 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 the fact that they don't seek the mother's attention and things like that so it, it's not about the intellectual aspect necessarily but uh, um well whatever it, it, it you can look deeper into that if you want to but but it's uh, exactly like um so one of the problems that i identify now with with so what's happening in the world is that we 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 we've got an accelerating change no one can deny that and uh, that is uh, inversely uh, proportional to how much you can uh rely on traditional methods right 
the, the methods that you have to rely on must be older though for, for them to actually be because things are changing and like uh, well it, whatever but um but traditional math methods don't really work as well uh so people lose uh their well the order in their life that they usually that they depended on and become very very desperate for new order and this is where the shamanic uh personality uh it's is that person's time to shine because uh shamanic per shamanoid personalities are are used to navigating in between paradigms and are a lot more adapted to chaotic environments um and it's their time to guide people but but it's also those types of personalities that become the charlatans and uh and do like you see the the, the guru culture in india for example yeah some some good stuff there and a lot of exploitation um so in order to to sort of deal with that problem uh well more scientifically educated or uh, or minded uh shamanistic personalities are required right um and that's why i think uh teaming up with with the the, the programmer types or the hacker types is a, is a good idea and that's what i'm trying to do now yeah precisely i think perhaps what happened in the 20th century and even before is that the gurus the shamanic types had to exist kind of as negations of the of the prevailing order it's like you either have the rationalistic modernistic paradigm or you have the guru who's able to offer something that they don't and so they create their community out in the desert where everybody prays and practices free love and whatever and it's experienced in that subcultural way as everybody over in mainstream society has got it wrong. We're the few who have got it right. The thing to do is to prevent the two being opposites to one another. They need to be brought back in. And so the priestly leaderly guru function is, is held and acknowledged as a legitimate function within a a rational scientific paradigm i i would say that negation is on a higher level than that really because i think the negation is that oh look at those people they think they got everything right we know that we don't have anything right at all and we our job is to or our niche is to be able to deal with the contradictions of the world right and to be able to navigate between opposites and 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 not be attached to a dogma right so, so it's it's sort of also like, um, um, yeah, it, it's definitely a well. They do open up the portals to a new world. Uh, they do become relevant to uh, well, it's when it's time for an exodus, uh, when the old priestly class uh, have stagnated and become corrupt and and have lost their ability to sort of uh, uh, update. Uh, in in accordance with the the new changes that is happening in the world so it it is an, a sort of uh, update mechanism that they they are uh, fulfilling um but and and especially it's it's a facilitator because the, the shaman is different from uh well a sort of medical doctor because it, it doesn't promise to he, he doesn't promise to cure you Right, that's not his job. He just facilitates you on your journey, on your own personal journey. It makes you go a little bit further, right? It, it doesn't necessarily like yeah, he can show you the way a little bit, but uh, but you you have to move. He's not going to fix you like the doctor is prescribing you a pill uh, or making uh, performing a surgery on you. Um, uh, and that comes with a uh, well. Uh, that frees the shaman of the responsibilities of uh, uh, he's not responsible of your outcome, really. And that's sort of a, a perspective that I want uh, on this clinic as well, that like uh, connecting back to these uh, neurophysiological param param parameters, uh, parameters, 
Um, I would never say that, okay, so we want to optimize your, uh, your sleep pattern, uh, patternings. No, uh, it would rather be that, okay, so, so let's go with what you're interested in. Uh, I have this information available <laughs> if you'd like, but it's like, um, perhaps the solution for you is actually to become way more crazy. Maybe you need to change your environment completely. Precisely, man. It's escaping this tyranny of health where, as you say, if you're healthy in a sick society, then perhaps you're the crazy one. I've found in myself recently, like I have a very strong self-destructive drive within me, which yeah. traditional medicine and therapy would problematize and say, right, we have to... Um, we have to downplay this. We have to try and sort this out, which I tried to do for a long time. But now I'm actually at a point where I'm like, okay, how can I turn this self-destructive drive into something beautifully productive, like an ever new destruction and rebirth of myself, but then also having the, the kind of just intuitive understanding of what it is to tear something down and to use mm. that in order to to tear down dying structures and build new ones. Mm. It's a gift in a way, and to simply problematize it and run away from it is is to lose it. Yes, it is to lose it or to lose track of it as well. <laughs> yes, to lose its potency for sure, but also lose track of it so that it can turn on to yourself because it is it has it not only its own agency, but it its own. Um, will and intentions and it wants to live uh, and if you are an obstacle for its survival then uh, it will do as much as it can to destroy uh, you <laughs> right so, so it, it's that's the rule of like everything that is like it, you can divide your mind into as many entities as, as you like that are striving for their own survival and that they're cooperating and colluding and intermingling and uh, conspiring and uh, other entities in your mind. And uh, sometimes these uh, entities, they do merge, they become functionally integrated. Uh, and and that's, that's how you have a mind, really. Uh, uh, but they can also become disintegrated, have a strong antagonistic relationship. And what to do about such antagonistic relationships is difficult because uh, sometimes you really do want to pick sides, but sometimes that antagonism uh, from the, that interaction, uh, a higher order um, entity emerges, which is a lot more interesting than any of those two parts would be by themselves. So um, I, I've, I've thought a lot about my own destructiveness um and, this, and trying to figure out what it is really trying to destroy and what 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 it is there for and to which degree i should try to sort of tame that or just completely live it out and uh, see what happens and, and it's sometimes uh, it turns out that okay so this just may well living out this uh destructive tendency actually destroyed something in me that shouldn't have been there in the first place. The self-hatred had a function. So in its raw destructiveness. But 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 some sometimes it has been simply to sort of challenge me. Right. That that like okay so um well the antagonism in itself makes the opposition uh, stronger, right? So, so like, um, um, yeah, well, you can make many examples of that, but uh, I'm not going to share mine because they're too personal <laughs> right now and a bit long. So, um, but then it's also like, so, 
yeah, the, the shit tests, you know, shit testing is pretty good uh, quite often. But, but then there's also the, the, the dance, the dialectic between libido, libido and mortido and the, well, the, the life and the death drive uh, that sort of, well, actually is in service of the of life itself because uh, because of this uh, this this uh, sort of elimination of redundancy right um, so um, so we need to integrate the shadows uh, it's a cliche but we need to do that for sure uh, and we can't do that without recognizing them um, yeah, man, become a monster. Don't be the bourgeois good boy who mommy always wanted you to be. Yeah. Then listen, I need to wrap this up, but it feels yeah. like we've hit it like a fruitful, uh, a fruitful well. I'd love to pick this up another time. 